get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Monday, October 2nd, 2023. You're listening to a special holiday edition of the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, millions of travelers have been hitting the road, boarding the boat, or taking to the skies as China celebrates the National Day holiday. The U.S. has narrowly avoided a shutdown of the federal government, and the team behind China's Chang'e 5 lunar probe has won a major international award. In the second half of the program, we'll bring you the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. Now checking the day's uh, top stories. Nearly 60 million cars hit highways in the first three days of China's mid-autumn and National Day holiday. Most of them are passenger cars. Uh, Travelers also made 1.5 million boat trips, doubling from the same period of last year. Transportation authorities at popular destinations have stepped up monitoring to guarantee safety. Uh, Meantime, Sunday saw over 52 million passenger trips via railway, highway, water, and air. That uh, represents an increase of more than 50% from last year. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce says sales of major retail and dining enterprises nationwide from September 29th to October the 1st rose more than 8% from last year. Festival merchandise, clothes, and smart electronics are among the top sellers. Autumn is generally considered a hot season for China's property market, this year especially so after several major cities recently introduced preferential policies targeting first-time home buyers. Uh, Agents across China are expecting to see more buyer interest during the Golden Week holiday, and Chen Tong has more from Shanghai. It's the holidays, but property agents are hard at work. In early September, Shanghai announced that buyers who don't own a home would be eligible for preferential loan rates regardless of their prior credit records. In the week that followed, sales at the agency doubled, with over 30 apartments sold. Most buyers at our agency are still looking for larger apartments who are moving from other areas to our region. Most people are still holding cash in their hands to see whether there will be favorable new policies in the future. Most home buyers are not rushing to buy. He expects to see more interest later in the week-long Golden Week holiday. We expect to welcome more buyers after October the 3rd, so all of us are standing by. It's not only in Shanghai. In recent months, many cities in China have also loosened the restrictions on residential property purchases, hoping to lure in more buyers. But some experts believe these moves aim at a relatively short-term goal, injecting more liquidity into the financial market. These policies are implemented from a financial perspective. They're effective in the short term to build market confidence. In the future, the question of how to build special industries to attract more talent will be crucial to pushing up the city's property market. After the easing of home loan restrictions, some actors believe more measures may be introduced in the weeks to come to further boost the property market. That was Chen Tong reporting. Hangzhou is a hot spot during this holiday period as it coincides with the Asian Games in the eastern city. Tens of thousands of people have poured in to catch up on some sports action and explore the city's culture. The Games are expected to give the city's growth a push. He Qianli has more. During the Asian Games period, it's anticipated that over 20 million tourists from outside of the city will visit Hangzhou. 
official data shows that the Asian Games is expected to contribute 414 billion yuan to the city's GDP, which is about 57 billion US dollars. Moreover, the influx of visitors not only benefits local tourism spending, but also leads to growth in other sectors like dining, hotels, transportation and shopping. And the tourism consumption in Hangzhou is not only driving its own growth, but also benefiting the surrounding areas in Zhejiang province. Cities nearby, for example, including Ningbo, Wenzhou, Xiaoxing and Jinghua, are also facing a shortage of hotel rooms because of the increased tourist influx. That was He Qianli on the effects of the Hangzhou Asian Games. Well, Chinese athletes have won gold medals in canoe sprint and equestrian competitions at the Asian Games in Hangzhou. Hua Tian claimed the individual equestrian title and also helped win the team event. In canoe sprint, China snatched the pole position in men's kayak singles 1,000 meters, women's canoe doubles 500 meters, and both women's and men's kayak doubles 500 meters. With more action from the Hangzhou Asian Games, we're joined live on the line with Brandon Yates. Good evening, Brandon. And first of all, uh, what do you make of the men's singles table tennis action. Hi Shane, yeah we've had a lovely day in Hangzhou today, the weather was really beautiful and just pleasant but we did spend most of our time inside the table tennis arena of the Hangzhou Asian Games and we really did see some exciting games being played. We, well first up we saw world number one Fan Zhendong of China up against Zhang Wujin of South Korea and we can clearly see why Fan is the world number one because he was very dominant in that match, he won four games to one and I think that he came out very confidently and managed to defend some of Zhang Wujin's um, attack pretty well. And then I think at that point, uh, Zhang was uh, pretty you know, disillusioned with the match. And I think that's when uh, Fan managed to really dominate that match. But then in the second match, we managed to see a much closer encounter between China's Wang Chuqin and Wang Chunting. And that match ended up uh, with a 4-2 victory for Wang Chuqin. And yeah, like I said, it, it was a much closer game. But I think it was still a pretty strong performance from Wang Chuqin. And once again, we have an all-Chinese final to look forward to between Wang Chuqin, the world number two, I believe, against world number one, Fang Chendong. Uh, so then, Brandon, uh, what do you think will be the highlights to watch out for uh, on Tuesday? Uh, there's quite a few highlights to look forward to. Um, first up, we've got some women's football action between China and Japan. I believe it's the uh, it's a rematch of the Asian Championship semi-final, and of course we know the rivalry the rivalry sorry between China and Japan in any sport uh, runs pretty deep. So I think that should be a very feisty match uh, to look forward to indeed. And we know that China have been performing pretty well at these Asian Games, so it should be an interesting game to watch. And then just for me personally, I'm a big water polo fan, so I'm really looking forward to see some uh, group stage water polo action. And then I would say the highlights of the games at this point in time in the second half of the, uh, of the Asian Games will probably be athletics. And there's a host of athletics gold medal events tomorrow, including the men's and women's 4 by 100 meter 100 meter relays, which Team China could be a gold medal contender for. So I would say those are my biggest highlights for tomorrow's action. Well, thank you very much for joining us. That was uh, Brandon Yates talking about the uh, latest action at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Well, coming up, the U.S. has narrowly avoided a shutdown of the federal government. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China 
and the rest of the world. At eight minutes past the hour, top U.S. House Republican Kevin McCarthy says he will survive a threat to his speakership after a hardline critic within the party called for his removal. McCarthy's worked with Democrats to pass a last-ditch short-term spending bill that averted a government shutdown. U.S. President Joe Biden has signed that 45-day stopgap bill. Sean Caleb's reports from Washington, D.C. Well, the first thing that happened on Capitol Hill was probably a collective sigh of relief that the U.S. avoided another government shutdown. But now lawmakers only have 45 days under the continuing resolution of funding uh, available to keep going. Uh, they were able to work out a deal chiefly because the Republican Speaker, House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, crossed party lines to work with the Democrats to find a way to move forward. Uh, certainly, President Biden, who signed the measure, is pleased, but he said we can't continue to operate like this as a nation. The first thing McCarthy is going to have to do is fight for his job. Some conservative lawmakers say they are going to be gunning for him. They want him removed as speaker because instead of working with Republicans, he chose to cross party lines and work with the Democrats. And in the end, more Democrats voted for the measure that McCarthy pushed through than Republicans did. And the MAGA Republicans just didn't get what they wanted. They wanted deep financial cuts. They also wanted money to secure the border with Mexico. Uh, that didn't happen. The Democrats, they got $16 billion for funding to take care of all the issues that came with climate change this year, the fires in Maui, flooding, drought. Uh, but they did not get funding for continuing funding for Ukraine. That was Sean Caleb's reporting. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev says Moscow will consider any British soldiers training Ukrainian troops in Ukraine as legitimate targets for Russian forces. Britain's defense minister earlier suggested that there are plans for British troops to train those Ukrainian forces. Medvedev, who is now deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, says such activities are bringing World War III closer. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said there are no immediate plans to deploy military instructors to Ukraine. In the meantime, NATO says it's temporarily deploying airborne warning and control system surveillance planes to Lithuania. The planes will monitor Russian military activity near NATO borders uh, to step up NATO's early warning capabilities. Turkish forces have carried out airstrikes in northern Iraq and destroyed 20 targets of the Kurdistan Workers' Party after the PKK claimed a bomb attack in front of the Turkish Interior Ministry building. The ministry identified one of the two attackers as a member of the outlawed group. It says the airstrikes targeted four of the group's bases. Mihail Bardavid has more. The terror attack took place near the entrance of Turkey's Interior Ministry, not too far from the parliament, which reopened later on Sunday afternoon. The attack was carried out by two people. First, a suicide bomber detonated an explosive device and was the only one killed by the blast. The second assailant was later killed by police during a gunfight. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan gave the opening speech at the parliament. We will continue our struggle with determination until the last terrorist is eliminated domestically and abroad. We will not allow the terrorist organization to direct politics and prevent our country's blessed march. The Parliament's General Council is set to hold its first 2024 legislative session on Tuesday. There are many issues on the agenda, including a new constitution, which the ruling Justice and Development Party has been working on for some time, as well as legislation on climate change and earthquake law. One critical issue will also be Sweden's NATO membership bid. The president has given a green light, but the parliament still needs to ratify it. 
Many Western allies, such as the United States, are eager for Sweden to join the military alliance and are closely following developments. That was Mihal Bardavid reporting from Turkey. Over 100,000 refugees have arrived in Armenia since the Azerbaijani military offensive in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region last month. Most of the refugees have arrived in southern Armenia. We're going to Yerevan to get registered to find a place to stay. We have four people. I need to take care of my little girl. It was very difficult. We were on the road for 26 to 29 hours. There was a lot of traffic. It was hard to get here. My mother is sick, and my brother has children and grandchildren. It was very difficult. Prosecutor General of Azerbaijan has issued an arrest warrant for former leader Ariyek Haruchunyan of Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan and Armenia have been at loggerheads over that region since 1988. Peace talks have been held since 1994, when a ceasefire was agreed on. Local media say fire injured dozens of people at a police headquarters in northeastern Egypt. Witnesses in the Suez Canal city of Ismailia say fire engines rushed to the scene, but appeared to be struggling in their efforts to contain the blaze. The cause of the fire is not yet known. Adele Al-Maruki reports. The fire has been contained, the blazes have been all extinguished, but yet fears of um, reignition is still there. Um, according to the latest report, the latest official report, 25 have been injured and the range of their injuries comes from burns to suffocations and they've all been um, um, moved right away to hospitals in Ismailia city which all of which are on their highest alerts. Ismailia city is a crucial trade city it's the headquarters of the Suez Canal Authority and therefore intervention with the blaze has been swift and immediate. Uh, we've seen firefighters the police as well as rescue teams from the Suez Canal and the Egyptian Armed Forces all have engaged with vehicles and aircrafts to to immediately uh, deal with this um, issue. The blaze caught fire in the headquarters of the Ismailia Security Office. This is the headquarters for the Interior Ministry in um, this uh, canal city. Um, and all the facade has been eaten away by the blaze and the structure and the causes, um, the effect on the structure and the causes of the blaze are yet to be identified as prosecutors um, rushed to the scene to begin their investigations right away. That was Adele Al-Maruki reporting. Indonesian President Joko Widodo has officially opened the Jakarta-Bandung Railway to the public. Southeast Asia's first high-speed railway is a flagship project under China's Belt and Road Initiative. It connects two of Indonesia's largest cities and significantly reduces travel times. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, a top international award for the team behind China's Chang'e 5 lunar mission. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. Right, 15 minutes past the hour. China's Chang'e 5 team has won the top award of the International Academy of Astronautics. The team brought lunar uh, samples to Earth during a 23-day mission in 2020. The IAA awarded the team uh, the laurels for team achievement for making outstanding contributions to hu uh, human lunar and deep space exploration. Chief designer Hu Hao of the Chang'e 5 mission says what's special is the recognition of the aerospace development in China from global peers. Uh, 
What we have been through and achieved in our lunar exploration program and the significance and influence of the outcomes have been recognized. The Chang'e 5 mission retrieved over 1,700 grams of lunar samples. Hu Hao says the samples will be available to foreign researchers for scientific studies. Some foreign experts and research institutes have expressed a hope to conduct scientific research on these samples. We're working on implementing procedures and methods on this matter, and will in time make that happen for our foreign peers, so that they can join in and apply for studying these lunar samples. China plans to launch its next robotic lunar probe next year. The Chang'e 6 probe is expected to collect samples from the far, uh, the far side of the moon for the very first time. Pet owners in China are becoming smarter about what they feed their companions and are carefully vetting products to ensure they're of the highest quality and nutrition. That's helped the pet bakery industry grow by leaps and bounds. Liu Jiahang spoke with some pet bakery owners for their perspectives on this booming industry. It's been a year since Li Chen Yunyun quit his job and started pet bakery business with his girlfriend in their hometown of Taizhou, Zhejiang province. Their bakery offers handmade biscuits, jerky, and rawhide products. It all started when their puppy Rice Ball had diarrhea after eating some of the pet treats they bought online. Some manufacturers add starch to dried meat to lower costs. Starch contains sugar, which can make it difficult for dogs to digest. Especially our dog has a weak stomach, so he had diarrhea after eating it once. This sparked their interest in handcrafting trees and pastries for their beloved furry companion. It happened to be a time when selling products at market stalls was becoming a fashion. So they decided to give it a try. We brought some products we made and set up our stand. There was pretty good feedback from the customers. Our products were always sold out. I think this industry has a promising future, as more people are becoming pet parents, and they want their pets to eat healthy and safe. They put in significant time and effort in studying pet nutrition and other professional knowledge to ensure their treats are nutritionally complete, friendly for dental health, and easily digestible. But hand-making such treats is quite a task. Lee says sometimes they have to pull all-nighters. As we get more orders for different products, and we want to make sure our customers get them sooner, staying up late is pretty common. Normally when making the duck leg treats, I have to remove the grease, which is bad for the digestive systems of the pets. That takes at least 20 minutes for each treat. In Fuzhou, Fujian province, a woman surnamed Fan has been running her pet bakery for more than five years. Besides selling handmade pastries and snacks, she offers training sessions for those who would like to try baking themselves. She says since pets mean so much more to their owners than ever before, pet bakeries have gained even more popularity in recent years. The industry's prospects look promising, and the concept of the pet economy and pet culture is gaining wide acceptance. The wages for pet bakers are quite good, especially in first- and second-tier cities. Many people have recognized the business potential in the market. An industry report shows the scale of pet food market in China stood at nearly 8 billion U.S. dollars in 2022 and is likely to grow 11 percent to 15 percent a year. In Taizhou, Li Chen Yunyun says there have been a lot more pet bakeries popping up. 
Many of our clients have been telling us that there has been a new pet bakery somewhere in town. It seems like the business has expanded to every district, especially since the beginning of this year. There used to be only us and one other bakery in town. However, the owners say those who are planning to get into the industry should not focus only on economic benefits. It's not hard to get into this business, but I hope those who plan to start can take time to learn the basics of pet care, nutrition, and other knowledge. We know that some products are advertised as handmade, but actually they're not. Deceiving consumers is unethical, and I think we need to run businesses with a conscience. The pet bakery market has become increasingly popular around the world, with experts expecting the highest revenue growth in the coming five years. However, as the owners say, whoever enters the booming industry should keep in mind the importance of honesty and ethics in their business practices. For the Beijing Hour, this is Liu Jiahun. Their busy schedules and long working hours. Many pet owners struggle to find time to take their pets to appointments or complete tasks such as regular feeding and grooming. And to address the issue, the door-to-door pet service industries emerged as a necessary alternative, offering convenience to pet owners in many cities across China. Zhang Tao has more. Known as pet sitting, this service allows pet owners to ensure their pets are well cared for while they're away from home. Professional pet sitters visit the pet's homes regularly, providing food, water, exercise and companionship to ensure that pets receive the care they need. 23-year-old Chen Xiaoyu is a pet sitter. Before entering the house, we will wear shoe covers and gloves. We also take photos of the pets and send them to the owners. If there is no monitoring camera in the house, we live stream the whole process with the owners. Tam normally plays a while with the pets after the service is done. The whole process takes around 40 minutes. The 23-year-old says the love for animals prompted her to take the job. I think for me, I prefer this job. That's the main reason for me to do the job. For pet owners, especially those who travel a lot, such services are quite necessary. Chunan owns two dogs and three cats. I often have to go on business trips, which means my cats and dogs are always left alone at home. If I send them to pet shops, they would be locked in cages. My cats are scared of water and unfamiliar environments. It would stress them out if they were taken outside. They should feel a lot safer at home. To ensure that pets receive appropriate care from qualified individuals, online pet services often employ experienced professionals with specialized skills and knowledge. Wang Zhihao runs a pet service platform called Cat Dad Arrives in Xi'an. He has been providing door-to-door pet services since last year. During the Chinese New Year, Wang helped feed cats and dogs in over 4,000 households. Firstly, our employees need to have their own pets so that they have first-hand experience with pet raising. Secondly, their ID numbers are recorded on our platform. Thirdly, they are also required to make a deposit to the platform. 
Fourthly, we have a comprehensive training program for these employees. The company now boasts a substantial user base with over 150,000 registered members, supported by a team of more than 200 staff members. The founder plans to expand into various pet-related sectors to meet the growing demand in the market. Figures indicate that the number of pet owners in China is predicted to exceed 100 million in the coming years. Moreover, with a population of 240 million singles in China, there is a huge space for potential growth in the pet market. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. On-demand home cooking services are gaining popularity among Chinese consumers who are prioritizing their health while grappling with time constraints. Do Hongyu has more. Customers provide the ingredients needed and then sit back and relax as the chef prepares the meal. Such chefs can earn dozens or even hundreds of yuan every time. Data shows that the market for on-demand home cooking services in China has reached a billion U.S. dollars. Some residents in Beijing have welcomed the service. For young people, especially white-collar workers, on-demand home cooking services are good, as they cater to those who are wary of tedious kitchen tasks and want to enjoy a pleasant meal. On-demand home cooking services can meet the distinct demands of various consumers while also enhancing the overall happiness within families. Such services are especially suitable for the elderly, families where both the husband and the wife often work late, or families interested in hosting large-scale banquets. The on-demand chef services also provide job opportunities. 55-year-old Li Chiu-hong is a chef in the southern metropolis of Shenzhen. She's responsible for preparing dinner for a family every weekday. After picking up the child, I prepare dinner and also do some cleaning work. I've been doing this for two months now and have earned over 7,000 yuan. I have plenty of free time and the money is good. Mr. Li from the family says the service has saved them a lot of time. We used to do grocery shopping and cooking ourselves. Usually we were not able to finish all those tasks until 8 p.m. Also, we are unable to prepare as diverse and varied dishes as professional chefs. So we decided to hire a private chef to pick up our child and prepare the dinner right away so that we can have dinner as soon as we arrive home. But the industry is also facing challenges amid concerns from consumers. The concerns mainly focus on food safety and hygiene, especially the quality of meals, the security for consumers and chefs. Some consumers say further market regulations and standardization are still needed. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Do Hongyu. Chief executive officers of over 50 major oil and gas companies have held discussions with bosses from heavy industries, including aluminum, steel and cement, to agree on a commitment to reducing carbon emissions ahead of a U.N. climate summit next month. The meeting in the United Arab Emirates tackled issues such as commercializing oxygen, scaling up carbon capture technologies, methane elimination and increasing renewable energy. COP28 President Sultan Al-Jabbar says the oil and gas industry needs to be involved in the conversation on climate change. He calls on the energy industry to achieve net zero carbon emissions on or before 2050 and to speed up an industry-wide commitment to reach near zero methane emissions by 2030. 
The COP28 summit is seen as a crucial opportunity for governments to speed up uh, actions to limit global warming. Reports show that many countries are not on target to meet promises to limit the rise of global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Uh, Beijing will be down to 14 degrees overnight. It's cloudy and 26 on Tuesday. Chongqing's at 20 this evening. Uh, then uh, tomorrow's uh, overcast turning to light rain and 26 degrees. Last is down to 10 degrees, then cloudy and 23. Hong Kong's at 28 this evening, then sunny and 33. Elsewhere, Tokyo, 17 overnight, a light rain and 26 on Tuesday. Islamabad's at 17 tonight, then sunny and 34. Bangkok's down to 26 degrees, then rainfall and 35. In Africa, Nairobi is getting a light rain and 29 degrees Celsius. And that wraps up this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, millions of travelers have been hitting the roads, boarding the boat, or taking to the skies as China celebrates the National Day holiday. And the U.S. has narrowly avoided a shutdown of the federal government. Well, coming up next, we'll continue the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. And today we'll hear details regarding Xi's decisiveness in policy making in the face of uh, pandemic outbreaks. We'll also follow the president's footsteps in conducting field research and find out how he has lived up to the trust and expectations of the people. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German Railway Company Deutsche Director of the International Nations Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. As China's COVID-19 response measure entered a new stage in January of 2023, travel rush for the Spring Festival returned, with people across the country going back to their hometowns for family reunions or traveling for fun. The hustle and bustle is back, and consumption sees a warm recovery. People's regular and busy lifestyles have returned. As an ancient Chinese saying goes, you never know the challenge of a task until you've done it yourself. 
every step in China's fight against COVID-19 has been a test on the wisdom and courage of Xi Jinping, the top policymaker of a country of over 1.4 billion people. In fact, when he was serving as secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee in 2003, Xi had already demonstrated his decisiveness in policymaking when he led the whole province in winning the battle against SARS. In November of 2002, a new disease called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, was first discovered in South China's Guangdong Province. The virus spread rapidly across China in only a few months. It was a rainy evening on April the 19th, 2003, in Zhejiang Provincial Capital, Hangzhou. The provincial health department received a report regarding three suspected SARS cases at a hospital in Hangzhou. After urgent consultations by a group of experts, Zhejiang confirmed its first SARS case. It was already 10 p.m., but this crucial information was reported immediately to Xi Jinping, then secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee. How to respond to emergencies is a tough test of a leader's decisiveness. At around 10:30 p.m., upon hearing reports and advice from experts, Xi decided that the most urgent task was to strictly contain the spread of the virus. He also proposed a comprehensive response plan to cope with the SARS outbreak across Zhejiang Province. The plan included guidelines such as speedy triage of patients with symptoms, all-out efforts to save lives, strict disinfection and quarantine measures, activation of contingency plans, and timely briefings for the public and higher authorities. With instructions pointing the way, all parties involved took action and started racing against time. Twenty minutes past midnight, Zhejiang reported the information to the then Ministry of Health of China. At 1 a.m., Hangzhou launched a contingency plan to respond to SARS. At 3 a.m., the first notice concerning the SARS outbreak was issued in Zhejiang, and an ambulance with special equipment transferred the three SARS patients to a designated hospital for treatment. Before 5 a.m., according to the law of the People's Republic of China on prevention and treatment of infectious diseases, 425 households in five urban neighborhoods who had had contact with the confirmed cases were put under quarantine. Starting from 6 a.m., local radio and TV stations in Hangzhou issued notices concerning the outbreak and updated the latest news every five minutes. Though 20 years have passed, looking back, people can still recall the thrill and tension in those 10 plus hours. Xi's prompt actions bought time for bringing the outbreak under control. Eventually, not a single case of second-generation SARS infection occurred in Zhejiang. Seventeen years later, in 2020, when faced with the sudden COVID-19 outbreak, Xi Jinping kept up with the situation in real time, gave instructions, and made arrangements in person. He proposed unconventional measures for an unusual situation and made every effort to ensure that infected patients were accounted for and attended to. On January the twentieth, she gave important instructions regarding COVID-19 control. He demanded effective measures to contain the outbreak, 
stressing that people's safety and health must come first. On January the 22nd, given the fact that the virus had been spreading rapidly, Xi Jinping ordered immediate and strict traffic control measures in Wuhan city and Hubei province in general. He said it takes great political courage to make such a decision. However, we must act when the moment is upon us. There will only be more suffering if we hesitate when decision is imperative. On January 23rd, Wuhan announced its lockdown, which played a decisive role in containing the outbreak from spreading across the country. On February the 2nd, emergency hospital Huoshenshan was officially delivered after an intense 10-day period of construction. Makeshift hospitals of various kinds also went into operation one after another. In face of a public health emergency involving a virus so virulent and contagious, she made resolute decisions and overall coordination to lead all parties in the fierce battle against the virus, buying as much time as possible to keep the virus at bay and save lives. And it wasn't just for China. The country's strict measures at the beginning of the outbreak also bought valuable time for the rest of the world in response to COVID-19. Many international figures have spoken highly of China's actions. In an exclusive interview conducted in May of 2020, Editor-in-Chief Richard Horton of The Lancet said China's decision to lock down Wuhan showed that the government acted decisively in the face of an acute emergency which bought time for the world to respond to the pandemic. For the duration of the epidemic, she made numerous important instructions to optimize China's COVID-19 response measures to ensure that policies stay relevant, accurate and effective. Since 2020, China kept improving measures regarding diagnosis, testing, treatment and quarantine to build a strong social defense line for epidemic prevention and control. Efforts were also taken to vaccinate the population, especially among the vulnerable group of the elderly. By the end of 2022, over 90% of the Chinese people have received vaccination. Over the three years of the pandemic, China has withstood several rounds of COVID-19 outbreaks and, as a populous country, its incidence rate, severe cases rate and death rate have remained at the lowest levels globally. As the virulence of new COVID-19 variants weakened and China's capabilities continued to improve in medical treatment, testing and vaccination, the Chinese government downgraded the response level for COVID-19 starting on January the 8th, 2023. The focus of work also shifted from infection prevention to protecting people's health and preventing severe cases. As such, China entered a new phase in COVID-19 response. From leading the fight against SARS in Zhejiang province two decades ago to leading all Chinese people in the battle against COVID-19, Xi Jinping has always been at the very front to make decisions and overall arrangement. Among all the challenges is how to balance epidemic prevention and control with social and economic development. The former impacted people's lives, the latter their well-being. 
How to balance the two was a tremendous test for Xi's capability in crisis management. Back in April of 2003, about one week after Zhejiang Province confirmed its first SARS cases, impact on its economy started to show. The service industry was the first to feel the chill. Volumes in air, rail, and road travel were on a constant decline. Business in hotels, restaurants, and shopping malls dropped sharply, and the number of tourists at scenic spots dwindled. The manufacturing industry across the province had a hard time conducting business with the outside. Many projects were forced to halt midway. Xi Jinping was aware of the situation and took contingency measures to stabilize social and economic development while continuing with SARS control and prevention. Under his leadership, Zhejiang introduced tax cuts and fee reductions for industries, including catering, tourism, and transportation, and issued credits to support enterprises facing difficulties. The province also guided small and medium-sized enterprises to turn to production of medical protective equipment, such as facial masks and protective clothing, that were in urgent demand. These measures provided subsidies for workers, staff members, and self-employed business owners who saw their incomes decline sharply due to the outbreak. Xi Jinping faced similar challenges when COVID-19 broke out. Oftentimes, none of the choices available was good enough, but a choice had to be made. In the three years of the pandemic, Xi succeeded in charting a path for China to strike a balance between short-term and long-term interests, and between partial and overall interests. During the primary stage of the battle against COVID-19 in 2020, China quickly contained the spread of the virus, which made it possible for some places to resume work first, and later overall resumption of production activities was achieved across the country. During the period when COVID-19 prevention and targeted control became routine, China intensified efforts in ensuring steady employment, stabilizing prices, improving people's well-being, and promoting economic performance in an all-round way. As a result, the country was able to maintain an annual economic growth rate of 4.5 percent on average over the three years of global pandemic. As Xi Jinping effectively combined strategic vision with tactical agility, China not only contained the epidemic but also stabilized its economy. From SARS to COVID-19, the safety of the Chinese people has always been the top concern for Xi Jinping. In the meanwhile, he also attached great importance to sharing information regarding the epidemics with the rest of the world and cooperating with the international community in fighting the epidemics. She believes that this is being responsible for the health of the Chinese people and also a contribution to global public health security. During the fight against SARS in 2003, a team of scientists in Zhejiang Province successfully tested the specific nucleic acid of the virus, cultivated and isolated the SARS virus, and completed the sequencing of the full genome of the virus. The team promptly shared the relevant information with GeneBank, 
and became one of the first teams from the Chinese mainland to contribute its research results about SARS to the International Gene Database. Regarding the COVID-19 outbreak in 2020, China also promptly reported the epidemic to the World Health Organization, shared the genetic sequence of the virus with the world, and released its guidelines on COVID-19 diagnosis, treatment, prevention and control. This provided the international community with a reliable reference for containing the pandemic and for research and development on vaccines and testing kits. She said that as the novel coronavirus ravaged the world, no country could deal with it alone, and cooperation was the most powerful weapon. Over the three years, while China was still dealing with sporadic local outbreaks, it made every effort to provide assistance to the international community. China provided hundreds of billions of pieces of anti-COVID materials to 153 countries and 15 international organizations and more than 2.2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines to over 120 countries and international organizations. The country also sent medical expert teams to 34 countries and held hundreds of exchange events with over 180 countries, regions and a dozen international organizations. China shared its COVID-19 prevention and control experience without reservation. The international community has spoken highly of China's actions. Johnny Montalvo, former government advisor to the city of Lima of Peru, said China has been supporting the global fight against COVID-19 with concrete actions. The Chinese government showed the world the importance of international cooperation to overcome difficulties. China not only put forward the proposal of cooperation in fighting the pandemic, but also set an example with its effective containment measures. The Chinese government and medical staff have kept working to cooperate with other countries to help them win the battle against the pandemic. President Tariq al-Shamari of the Council of Arab International Relations also lauded China's contributions to the global fight against COVID-19. Under the leadership of President Xi Jinping, the Chinese government made great efforts in fighting the epidemic, which has been highly regarded and recognized by the international community. We have seen the significant achievement obtained by the Chinese nation. We have seen how Chinese people are united in one purpose, and China's effort in cooperating with other countries and jointly prevent and defeat the coronavirus pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic has triggered multiple crises across the globe with extensive and profound impact on the international order. With Xi Jinping's leadership, China has been building on its achievements in the prevention and control of COVID-19 and vigorously advancing its economic recovery to inject vitality and confidence in the world economy. China is demonstrating with solid actions its vision of a global community of health for all. This is CGTN Radio. You're listening to the podcast of stories of Xi Jinping. On his state visit to Italy in March of 2019, 
Xi Jinping was asked by President of the Italian Chamber of Deputies Roberto Fico about how he felt when he was elected Chinese president. Xi Jinping replied, "It is indeed a huge responsibility and an arduous task to govern such a big country. For the good of my people, I will put aside my own well-being, and I'm willing to be selfless and devote myself to China's development." On a bright April morning in 1982, the countryside of Hebei Province was bathed in golden sunlight. A tall young man in simple attire pedaled along a bumpy dirt road on an old bike, leaving trails of dust behind. The young man was 28-year-old Xi Jinping, who was serving as deputy secretary of the CPC Zhengding County Committee. He was on his way to conduct field research. Zhang Wupu, a local official of Shijiaotong Commune, had received the notification the day before and was waiting for Xi outside the village. Upon a closer look, he quickly recognized Xi, just as described over the phone. Welcome.、Um, did you get here by yourself? That's more than fifteen kilometers. You didn't get lost on the way, did you? No, there were a lot of people on the way, and I asked them for directions. It's hard to cross that huge sandpit with a bike. I know. I carried my bike and walked across. That was a reenactment of the conversation based on published works. During his time working in Zhengding County, Xi was often seen riding on his old bike, visiting villages and households for field research. To get to know the county and its people became an important part of his daily schedule, but the country roads were not always smooth for an old bike. The Wide Hutu River runs through the county, but the riverbed was dry all year round, covered with nothing but a thick layer of sand and dust. Without a bridge, people had to traverse the riverbed. But bike wheels got stuck in the dust and sand all the time. On his trips, Xi Jinping simply picked up his bike and carried it over. With his frequent visits, both of his shirts had holes from carrying his bike during summertime. Xi's three years in Zhengding County was a period of tireless dedication. He visited and inspected all 25 towns and 221 villages in the county. From planning for the county's future to helping individuals sell their produce, she devoted immense time and energy. In the winter of 1983, Xi Jinping fell ill from overwork and irregular diet and was admitted to the hospital upon doctor's insistence. His office staff went to visit him, looking apologetic. If we had been more helpful, you wouldn't be burned out from so much work. It's no big deal, just something minor. We must not bother with trifles about ourselves, otherwise we'll be distracted from serving the people. Three days later, Xi Jinping insisted on getting discharged from the hospital and plunged back into working round the clock. Xi Jinping was driven by a conviction to not let the people down, as he prioritized work over his own needs. He said he wanted only to improve the lives of the people 
and make more down-to-earth contributions to those who had not yet enjoyed affluence. I consider myself a relatively hard-working person, one who puts in the efforts to achieve a goal and keeps working towards it. I also hope that I can stay on the goal of my life, which is to do all that I can for the people. From working at local levels to the central government, Xi Jinping traveled extensively to conduct field work and research. In his view, only by understanding people's actual conditions at the grassroots level and listening to opinions from all sides can one get to the core of problems and arrive at the best solutions to promote development. To effectively address the pressing concerns of the ordinary people, Xi Jinping always picks the thorniest path and shoulders the heaviest responsibilities. In 1985, Xi Jinping left Zhengding for his new post as deputy mayor of Xiamen City in Fujian Province. He requested to take charge of agriculture and the rural areas, and started his field research in the countryside on the third day at his new job. Unlike today, most parts of Xiamen were still rural areas back then. In the following three years, Xi Jinping covered on foot. The most remote and impoverished areas, in poverty-stricken Jingying Village and Baijiaozi Village in the high mountains, she trekked through difficult terrains and crossed rivers to talk to villagers and learn about their conditions. He helped them find ways out of poverty, which included growing tea and fruit trees at the foot of the mountain and preserving the mountain forests. Xi Jinping advocated that county-level officials visit all villages under their jurisdiction, municipal-level officials visit all townships, and provincial-level officials visit all counties. He emphasized that leaders and officials must go deep to the grassroots level and reach the most underdeveloped areas to address pressing and challenging issues for the people. Only by doing so can people's voices be heard. Their needs addressed and their trail to better life blazed. Ensuring a better life for the people has always been Xi Jinping's goal. Even after taking office in the economically developed province of Zhejiang, Xi didn't slow down his pace. In November 2002, Xi Jinping took up his post as both secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee and acting governor of the province. Despite the heavy workload, he still managed to spend more than one third of his time every year staying up to date with grassroots communities and government departments. On such occasions, Xi insisted on traveling light and straight to places with the most difficult problems. He dived into the heart of the matter, directly communicated with grassroots officials and local residents, always striving to hear the truth, understand the reality, take effective measures, and achieve practical results. On almost every trip, she worked on tight schedules, but he would still try to visit more places and more people. Oftentimes, his itinerary would be covered with his handwritten notes, adding extra stops on his trips. 
February 15th of 2003 was an important Chinese holiday known as the Lantern Festival. On that day, Xi Jinping went with the team to inspect several manufacturing enterprises in different cities of Zhejiang Province. He went into the workshops, asked about production, observed the working environment, and even held a late-night seminar to work out solutions for problems. It was another busy day as usual. As families everywhere got together at the dinner table, Xi and his team were still on their way. Glows of lanterns faded into the distance outside their van, while everyone on board still preoccupied themselves talking about work. After that field trip to local enterprises, she concluded that Zhejiang Province had significant competitive advantage in textiles, clothing, machinery industries, among others, and that accelerating the development in electronics, pharmaceuticals, environmental protection may lead to breakthroughs in heavy chemical industries. He proposed a new development goal for the province, which was to establish in five years a highly internationalized and advanced manufacturing base, led and supported by high-tech industries and high-value-added industries with local characteristics. For Xi, conducting investigations and research should never be superficial work, but is a serious approach to directly confront contradictions and challenges. Seeking the key and offering prescriptions to address problems. To squeeze out more time for grassroots research, Xi Jinping usually worked over 12 hours a day, sometimes more than 16 hours, and seldom took weekends or holidays off. His office was often lit late into the night. In 2003 alone. Xi Jinping finished roughly 50 field research trips at various institutions and attended over 360 various conferences and meetings. His staff once remarked on the challenge of packing so many items into the schedule of a year. Over the years, Xi Jinping traveled to almost every corner of Zhejiang Province, gaining first-hand knowledge about the province and deepened his relations with the local people. On March 24, 2007, Xi started his new job as secretary of the CPC Shanghai Municipal Committee. In the seven months and four days of working there, he covered the grounds of all 19 districts and counties of Shanghai, where he talked to people in government offices and private enterprises, in markets and in the fields, in urban communities and rural villages. Many officials were greatly inspired by him as a role model. Zhu Jihua, who was working as Xi's staff member at the general office of the CPC Shanghai Municipal Committee, remembered being impressed by Xi Jinping's dedication to work. He's rigorous and serious in his approach, and always sets high standards. He always makes people feel inspired and invigorated. His actions speak louder than words, leave a deep impression, and motivate people to learn from him. Xi Jinping once said, "As China's leader, serving the 1.4 billion Chinese people and working with them for a better life is a great challenge and a great responsibility. I shall put aside my own well-being and live up to people's expectations. From conducting rural research on a bike to formulating national strategy in the central government, 
She has demonstrated his lifelong commitment to serving the country and his people. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From north to south, east to west. People in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 